Hello and welcome to the Tetrapod Zoology Podcast Prequel. Today is the 30th of January 2013. I'm John Conway and you're about to hear the smooth, silky tones of Dr. Darren Naish. Hi, Darren. Hi, how's it going? All right, all right. How are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> Good podcasting, Darren. <laughs> it's getting well so far. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you said you'd edit. So, what sort of podcast do you think people want? Do you think this is what they tune in for? Well, <laughs> it's not going well already. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's all right. I can fix everything in post. <clears throat> Seriously, we're going to have to start again. <clears throat> what? Are we go- I'm not going to do the whole <clears throat> hi Darren thing again. It just no, no just don't, just don't. Just, just... okay. So. <laughs> Okay. What have you been up to? What have I been up to? Well, um, I've been doing quite a bit of technical work lately on pterosaurs. And at the time of speaking now, there is a a paper on pterosaurs which is due out today, hopefully. So um, that's been taking up most of my time uh, lately. Quite a few other things. Recently published a paper on uh, plesiosaurs. Obviously, I've been uh, continuing with, with various work on theropods and other things and, and ichthyosaurs and other animals I work on. Um, obviously also been busy writing uh, for Tetsu on uh, uh, obscure frogs and uh, seabirds and uh, well there's always a lot of things planned that, that, that I hope to uh, publish on cool, Tetsu cool. sometime soon. Uh, we'll talk about some of them later but um, uh, so what's the skinny on the um, on the pterosaurs? Um, well I suppose by the time this podcast goes out the paper will be released so i can say what i like right yeah you can also tell me not to put it out can't you? so there you go the paper is in plus one and it's due to come out i think we're waiting for confirmation but i think it's due to come out tonight and it describes a new as dark a pterosaur from the latest cretaceous rocks of um, the transylvanian basin in uh, romania and it's a new taxon uh, which we've named euras darko langendorfensis uh, it's one of several projects that has either come out or is due to come out soon on field work that I and colleagues have done on uh, late Cretaceous Romanian stuff. Really exciting fauna. I mean, um, during the latest Cretaceous, during the Maastrichtian, much of Romania was, of course, a giant island, Hatzeg Island, it's known as, and it's it's famous for its dwarf ankylosaurs, dwarf sauropods, weird, archaic duckbird dinosaurs, um, the peculiar uh, manoraptoran theropod Balor Bondok, this weird stubby-footed Probable dromaeosaur is, is from there, and yeah, the one there that were, sort of, they, everyone said had it had two two sickle claws, but yeah, said it had two sickle claws because it, not so much. yeah, it's that it's that it's got it's got both the hallux raised as well as digit two, and that makes it look like it's got uh, the both digits raised in parallel. But that does seem to be a fluke. It just seems the hallux is not really sure on that, even though I've looked at the, looked at the specimen. The, the giant monograph on that animal, incidentally, is due to come out in a matter of days. But um, in on this island ecosystem, latest Cretaceous times, um, there are gigantic Asdarchids. There's an animal called Hatsogoptrix thambema, which is, as you know, one of the biggest, well, probably the biggest Asdarchid. A wingspan of probably 10 to 11 meters. It's on par with Quetzalcoatlus, 200 to 250 kilos, according to estimates produced by... Witten and Habib and others. Um, but we have found that alongside these supergiant as darkids, there are small ones as well. And this new animal, Eurus Darko, is a small one, a wing small for you know, small for an as darkid wingspan of about three meters. 
So there are giant Asdarkids, but there are small Asdarkids living seemingly side by side in the same ecosystem, which is one of those things where, you know, if you go up to, if you say this to someone, say, oh, we found those big ones and small ones in the same habitat, they say, well, well, big deal, you know, don't, don't you kind of expect that sort of thing you see in modern ecosystems, you see close relatives, <clears throat> excuse me, close relatives living alongside one another, but it's one of those things in paleontology where you don't, you might assume it, but you don't know it until you have evidence for it. And it's not always the case. I mean, sometimes you can have animals that are just a one-off, right? You have a similar situation with, um, with Quetzalcoatlus in, in Texas, right? You've got a small one and a big one. That's right. So the fact that we've got these big ones and small ones living alongside one another, that led us to basically, you know, go and look at places where other places, whereas dark is unknown. And you see several geological units around the world where this pattern is repeated, where you have a really big one, a Quetzalcoatlus-sized or Hatsogopteryx-sized animal together with a small one. Some places, like in um, the Javelina Formation in Texas, where Quetzalcoatlus is from, you seem to have three. There's, there's, everyone knows there's the giant Quetzalcoatlus. Then there's this animal called Quetzalcoatlus spur, which still hasn't been properly described or named, despite <laughs> the fact that it was discovered in 1975. Well, you know, these things take time. You can't rush them. Uh, pterosaur workers. <laughs> what can we say about ter pterosaur workers? Have to be. It's just a coincidence, isn't it? But there, there are some extremely thorough individuals in that community. <laughs> um, and then we also have in the Havelina, we have this animal. Uh, it's only known by well, t this TMM specimen, TMM eight four eight two six two or whatever it is. This um, um, specimen, which has been some. It's only known from the front part of the snout and lower jaw, and it's sometimes been illustrated, including in Peter Vellenhofer's Encyclopedia of Pterosaurs. It's been illustrated as a specimen of Quetzalcoatlus, but it's not. It's rather different. It's quite shorter, snouted than Quetzalcoatlus spur. With it's got quite skull. a high snout too, isn't it? That's yeah, yeah. It's Encyclopedia that's of Pterosaurs. Right. Yes, yeah. right. It's tall and tall and short, taller and shorter than, than you'd expect for an Asdarkid. And it looks a little bit Thalassodromid-like, like Thalassodromus and Tupacswara. And as a consequence, a couple of authors, including myself, have actually argued in print that it is a species of Tupacswara, but we now think that's incorrect. Mark Whitten wrote an article a few years ago <clears throat> explaining why that was incorrect. So that means there are three Asdarkids in the Havelina. And um, so it, we, we think that there are, we can say there are several communities around the world where you have seemingly... Um, niche partitioning among as dark it's the smaller ones are obviously doing different things from the giant ones and uh it's this discovery of Eurus darko in the same community as Hatsogopteryx, which has led us to think that you know maybe the uh the structure of the uh, as darkid the, the the structure of the ecosystems as dark is a part of is maybe more complicated than maybe we've assumed before you always have to be careful in saying things like this because we're not saying that we're the first people to say this. Obviously, other people have noted the presence of more than one Asdarkid in a, in a unit before, but this, it's worth considering further. What does it actually mean for the shape of the communities and everything? Do you think you're getting this pattern because Asdarkids are pretty much the only thing around by that, by that stage? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, well, that is that's a really interesting point. I mean, we we as as you've just alluded to the uh, by by the end of the Cretaceous, it seems there are only two or three uh, pterosaur lineages around. There, there's probable presence for nyctosaurs uh, in the, the the very last part of the late Cretaceous. In that's the pronounced nyctosaurs, by the way. Who says me? 
<laughs> I was going to say this. Well, you could be right. I don't know. We we just make make these pronunciations up, don't we? N I C K. If it was Nick <laughs> I'm sticking with Nick DeSauce, thanks very much. Oh, but um, <laughs> most of them, yeah, most pterosaurs obviously in the Maastrichtian are as dark kids. So if you're going to expect pterosaurs to be doing more than one thing, then yeah, you're going to have to have different species of, uh, of as dark kids. From the Romanian perspective, from the perspective of this Hatzeg Island ecosystem, it's particularly interesting because although this is, the size of this island is under dispute. Uh, some people suggest that it was as small as about 7,500 square kilometers, which is about the size of, say, one of the small Caribbean islands. Um, Puerto Rico, it's a fairly close to Puerto Rico. And other people suggest that it was as much as uh, 200,000 square kilometers, which is more like Ellesmere Island in the Arctic. You know, that, that's, a, that's a big island. I don't know how big the UK is, but whatever, it's, it's big. Um, but we know that there was whatever, however big it was, we know that it had a, a rich diversity of dinosaurs and crocodiliforms and lizards and, and mesozoic mammals and so on. But one thing that's absent, there are no big theropods. We don't have any big theropods from this island. And um, it's kind of tempting to wonder whether the, the Asdarkids here are kind of exploiting the absence of big theropods. Of course, the problem with that hypothesis is you immediately say, well... Quetzalcoatlus is living alongside, you know, tyrannosaurs and so on. So it doesn't seem that there <clears throat> would that would be a problem. But one thing that I am um, I am discussing or touching on in the Tetsu article, which is going to go live on today or whatever, is um, there's the, there are now several suggestions that the biggest of as dark it's had objects and Quetzalcoatlus and so on. There's, there's there's the idea out that they could have been flightless. Now we can't test this because we don't yet have good wing remains from those giant species. But if there's anywhere in the world where a giant Astarchid is going to be flightless, it's probably on an island. So are there no wing remains from Quetzalcoatlus, Northropi, the big one? Um, oh, this humorous, isn't there? But no. Yeah, oh, yeah, sorry, wing finger remains. Yeah, yeah um, off the top of my head, I mean, it's a bit dangerous to say this, but I, I don't think there are. I think that every single time that you see wing elements, uh, distal to the humerus. Every time you see distal uh, wing finger elements for Quetzalcoatlus, they're always from the small one, aren't they? So, yeah, yeah I'm not absolutely sure, but I think, I think that's right. I don't think there's any elements that would allow you to, that would inform this debate about flightlessness. And there also, aren't perhaps, sorry. sorry. Also, I guess you could argue that they were flighted when they were smaller and um, yeah. lost the ability one? to fly, and therefore they would still would have um, wing yeah. elements. But well, yeah, all, all these things are out them. there. Well, yeah, I mean, we know of some modern birds. Um, I'm talking of some species of steamer duck where individuals are flight. Well, in, in waterfowl in general, ducks in general, individuals are flighted or flightless at different times of their life, depending where they are in their molt cycle. And also you can have females that are flighted and males that are flightless. You can have these kinds of intraspecific um, differences in, yeah. in flightlessness. Um, so, so those things are at least plausible Yeah, well, for pterosaurs as well. We do have new information specifically relevant to this subject that's being worked on at the moment. We, we do have more material of Hatsagodrix that's under description right now. Right. So it, it still could be um, a flighted animal. I don't, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't say any more yet on, on, on that. Right. Very sensitive area. <laughs> <laughs> it's a special area. Yeah. I won't touch you there. <laughs> Hands off. <yeah. laughs> All right. 
so maybe we should move on to talking about what's been on um on Tetsu the blog. Yeah. Recently. Yeah. Uh, what has been on Tetsu the blog recently? Um, well, there's been many things, hasn't there? As, there as always, always is. of course. Yes. Yes. But I guess I wanted to start with the plesiosaurs. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I am actually very, very confused by plesiosaur phylogeny. So perhaps we should run through a little bit about what they are and the main sort of branches and groups and clades. Um, just so I can have a grounding because I'm often quite confused. So yeah, maybe you could start with that. Yeah, so um, within plesiosauria in general, we obviously know that we have the long-necked, short-headed, small-headed ones that we that traditionally have been called plesiosaurs or long-necked plesiosaurs, and then the short-necked, big-headed ones, conventionally called pliosaurs. Um, that's pretty basic stuff, right? But mm -hmm. we now are very confident that some of the ones that have the pliosaur type of body shape are nested within the long-necked clade. So people now, following work that was done by plesiosaur researcher Robin O'Keefe a couple of years ago, we now refer to the pliosaur-shaped ones as the pliosauromorphs and the long-necked ones as the plesiosauromorphs. And there are members of the long-necked Long neck plesiosaur clade <laughs> are pliosauromorphs, but they are not closely allied to other pliosauromorphs. So we've got these two body, body styles that definitely evolve like more than once. Okay, Sorry, just to be clear, pliosauromorphs <laughs> and plesiosauromorphs, these aren't clades. No, that's the general just description. names of body plans, if you Body like. plans, the same yeah. as mesomorph and endomorph, yeah. so human body shape. Yeah. Um, but cladistic studies have consistently, since O'Keefe's work, so from the late 1990s onwards, they've consistently shown that there are clades that kind of do correspond to plesiosauroidea, the mostly long-necked ones, and pliosauroidea, the mostly short-necked ones. But early members of pliosauroidea might have been long-necked. And as I said, there are pliosauromorph members of the plesiosauroid clade. So it does seem that there's an early divergence into a pliosauroid and a plesiosauroid clade. Um, there are some um, pliosauroids, like the Romaliosaurs, this mostly early Jurassic pliosauromorph group. Some members of that group are really quite long-necked and they don't have heads that are as big as those of kind of conventional pliosauromorphs. And if those animals, if those Romaliosaurs really are members of the pliosauroid lineage, then that shows that early pliosauroids were plesiosauromorph. You, this is very hard without diagrams. I don't know if you'll follow me at all. <laughs> then, but the problem is that there are... I also, understand why I was confused. Yeah, there are conflicting phylogenies, which is one of the problems as well. So there's a pliosauromorph clade called the polycotylids. So relatively short necks, relatively big heads... And there are actually competing positions as to where they go in the phylogeny. So conventionally, because they look pliosauromorph, they've been included within pliosauroidea. And there are some recent phylogenetic studies that find uh, polycotylids, find these pliosauromorph animals to be close relatives of pliosaurids, like Lyopleurodon, and then animals like Trinacromeron and Kronosaurus. So some studies do find these pliosauromorph animals to go within the pliosauroid lineage. But other studies that find that they've actually got, polycotylids have actually got a lot of features that are otherwise typical of long-necked plesiosauromorph taxa. And those studies find these pliosauromorph polycotylids to be deeply nested within the 
plesiosauroid, this mostly long-necked clade. Um, and the, the, the group that that um, Tetsu article is mostly about, the Leptoclydids, they are involved in this as well because they've been, they're, they're pliosauromorph, so again, they're short-necked, relatively big-headed, and they've often been allied with Romaliosaurs. They've also been regarded as the ancestors of polycotylids. So again, you have totally conflicting phylogenies where some people put them in the, say that they are pliosauromorph and they go within the pliosauroidea, and other people say they are pliosauromorph, but they are deeply nested within the plesiosauroidea, and they're maybe close to polycotylids. They show that within the clade of plesiosauroids that includes elasmosaurs and cryptoclydids, uh, this shows that there's a, um, uh, a reduction in neck length uh, with leptoclidids being kind of inter having intermediate neck proportions and polycotylids having shorter neck proportions. So, like I say, very hard to show without diagrams. I mean, I think I did show a few cladograms on Tetsu. There are competing cladograms um, where the positions of some of these groups are totally changeable according to which analysis you, you follow. And, um, and there are studies currently in press that have completely conflicting uh, results as well. So it doesn't look like this debate is going to be resolved anytime soon. But basically, there is a, there is a pliosauroidea, there is a plesiosauroidea. Because names like plesiosaur are now so confusing, some people deliberately use plesiosaurian to refer to all members of plesiosauria. And they only talk about, so you only talk about plesiosaurians and plesiosauroids. <laughs> Right, I'm Which, sure everyone so, will remember that. Yeah, <laughs> so it's dead simple. So I'm sure you've heard. And and then and then there are some recent phylogenies that have even found some plesiosauromorphs like Romaliosaurids to be outside the clade that includes plesiosauroids and pliosauroids. So they actually have Romaliosaurs as the sister taxon to a clade that includes all of the plesiosaurs, and that clade's been called Neoplesiosauria. So that, that's Neo another. Neoplesiosauria, great. Yeah, okay. that's another topology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that, so, yeah, <laughs> what sorts of time periods do these various groups turn up in? Um, well, plesiosaurians as a whole are um, originated in the late Triassic. We've got various fragments of them from like the Rhesian, uh, and they seem to be like early um, Romaliosaur type animals. And then um, it does seem that you have um, major radiations of both pliosauroids and plesiosauroids, including many of the classic groups like the cryptoclydids and the pliosauroids. You have those in the middle and late Jurassic. But then there seems to have been a major turnover around about the Jurassic Cretaceous event. And then it's almost as if everything is kind of, um, there's a major explosion of, of intermediate taxa and pliosauromorph, pliosauromorph, taxa that aren't related to the pliosauromorph taxa of the early and middle uh, Jurassic. So the groups like, classic groups like, um, uh, again, there are competing ideas. And, and one of the things that's kind of happened within recent years is some of the um, ideas about the affinities of certain groups have changed. So some people have proposed that various um, early and middle Jurassic long-necked, so plesiosauromorph, uh, tax. So some people have suggested. I think I think long necked is better. Yeah. Okay. Some and short necked. Keep it simple. I'm with you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Some people have said that that some of the long necked ones from the like early part of the Jurassic are early elasmosaurids. Elasmosaurids, this you know most most famously associated with the late Cretaceous. Um, whereas more recent studies have found that they aren't elasmosaurids. These Jurassic ones, they're just kind of an earlier experiment in long necked plesiosaur evolution 
uh, and they aren't closely related to elasmosaurids, in which case elasmosaurids are like only a Cretaceous event. There's a group from the very end of the Cretaceous that have always been called Aristonectids, and they're really weird long-necked or intermediate-length-necked um, plesiosaurs with multiple teeth, as many as like 200 teeth. They're sometimes associated. It's been suggested they were um, suspension feeders of, of some sort. They're, they're mostly known from the Southern Hemisphere, from Antarctica, New Zealand, and South America. And they've conventionally been interpreted as close relatives of the mostly middle Jurassic cryptoclydids. But some newer studies have shown that these aristonectids, in fact, are a subgroup of elasmosaurids. So again, this kind of cuts, if that's true, it, it, it reduces the number of lineages that are meant to have persisted from the Jurassic into the Cretaceous. So what we're seeing at the moment is a general, generally developing towards the idea that the plesiosaurs of the Cretaceous represent a, a radiation from just one or two lineages that made it into the Cretaceous and that they were their radiation was a separate event from the Jurassic radiation. Right. And so the in the article you talk about now remind me, which <laughs> clade is it that is supposed that is controversial as to whether it's a radiation from plesiosauroids or pliosauroids? Well the article is mostly about leptoclidids. Leptoclidids. Yeah, so they are relatively short necks, so they're pliosauromorph, yeah. but they've kind of got intermediate proportions. Some of them have got longish necks of, say, like 24 cervical vertebrae, um, and their heads aren't as big as those of classic pliosaurs. Um, so, yeah, they, they are a controversial group. Some people have regarded them as um, late surviving relics of the, the kind of Romaliosaur radiation of the early Jurassic. That is that that is interpreting them as members of this short-necked pliosauroid clade. But other people, and we argue in our recent paper, we argue that instead the character evidence better supports them as deeply nested within the, the mostly long-necked clade. Um, allied to elasmosaurs and um, yeah, the other, yeah. th are the other things that were meant to make it through the Jurassic Cretaceous yeah, um, so part, part, yeah, part of a clade that includes the cryptoclidids, which are the yeah. ones famous for having lots of small needle-like teeth, the elasmosaurids, famous for their stupidly long necks, and the polycotylids, the ones that also are controversial because they are um, pliosauromorph in body form. But, so this would mean this is a substantial reduction in the number of ghost lineages yeah, exactly. from right. the late Cretaceous into the Jurassic, yeah. Jurassic yeah. and even early Jurassic. That's right. Yeah, there is a major paper coming out about this. I'm not involved in it, but Roger Benson and Pat Druckenmiller. And um, that is one of their main conclusions, that the number of lineages that actually make it through the Jurassic Cretaceous boundary changes substantially according to this new phylogeny. And the pliosauroids, how, how many lineages of them made it through? Are they still in good shape in the early Cretaceous? And the... Yeah, well, they seem to have survived till pretty late in the... Uh, Cretaceous till I think possibly around the Cenomanian, so that's kind of like late middle-ish Cretaceous, about uh, I don't know 95 million years ago or so, because yeah. um, animals like Brachycinus and Chronosaurus do seem to be allied to Pliosaurids or members of the Pliosaurid clade within Pliosauroidea. 
Yeah. Uh, if they turned out not to be pliosaurs, I'm afraid the whole pliosaur thing sort of falls apart for me. I can't sure. think of any other pliosaurs. They are well, the pliosaurs. You've had pliopleurodon. <laughs> yeah, okay. Isn't that, oh, is that, oh, that's a late Jurassic one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Or, I thought uh, pliopleurodon was very similar to Kronosaurus. Well, it's similar, but I wouldn't say very similar. I mean, they are kind of similar. One of the problems with Kronosaurus is it's one of those classic animals where... I think, I don't know about you, but, you know, I certainly have an image of it in my mind. I'm sure most people do. And that image is substantially inaccurate because it's based on the uh, the erroneously augmented skeleton at Harvard, which uh, has been given extra vertebrae to make it much longer. So it looks much longer than the actual animal did. And it's when you think of its skull, you think of the Harvard mount, but it was substantially well, stored in plaster to look different from the original thing. Actually, I was lucky enough to be in Queensland when Colin McHenry was going through all the um, Kronosaurus material. So uh, I actually saw a lot of the original fossils, including a nearly complete skull. Which we, no way. Well, which we moved to moved around and put together. I mean, it was shattered up, but um, it was, it was quite impressive. It doesn't really look anything like that Harvard Mount. It looks quite, um, no, yeah, I, I've very seen triangular. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen Colin's reconstructions and I, as far as I know, he still hasn't published them, but, um, yeah, some years ago, he, he showed a, uh, at, at a conference, I remember him showing a, a reconstruction of his view of Kronosaurus, and it was radically different from anything you've seen in the literature. It looked really weird as well. It, uh, its head was proportionally huge. Yeah, uh, it does, does seem like its head is really huge. And as I say, very triangular. I actually don't have a very good notion of what Lyopleurodon looks like. I think that's the one I'm less familiar with. <clears throat> well, interestingly, the kind of similar situation. We do have a good handle on what Lyopleurodon looks like and most people if they want to know and if they're not looking at specimens they look at <laughs> andrews's monograph from the 1920s i think but um uh, liopleurodon and cymolestes another uh, pliosauroid of some sort uh, again controversial ideas on what it is but th those two animals were monographed in detail by leslie noe um for his P phd but he, he hasn't published that work and I, i've i have access to that work and so i have a good handle of what the skull of certainly what the skull of Lyopyridon looks like. And again, it's something that hasn't really been reflected in um, mainstream literature and certainly not in things like uh, the, the classic version, like walking with dinosaurs and walking various dinosaurs, pictures. Yeah. yeah, things you've seen in books. They don't, they aren't, they're, they're close, but they're not an accurate match in terms of what it's meant to, what it really looked like as far as we can tell. It seems to be quite a pattern with a lot of these large, quite famous animals they're actually much less studied than you'd think. Mm -hmm. There's not as much in the literature as you'd under, as you'd think, and people haven't accessed it as much as you. Yeah, I, I find would. that's I find that's true for so many things in descriptive zoology. Though you 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 name a subject or a, or a taxon, you know, a particular species or whatever, and you, you you're you know off the top of my head, you know, off the, off the top of anyone's head, if they know this stuff, they can think of like one or two studies. And if you actually write down how many things have really been published on on it, it's 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 frightening. I mean, I remember seeing just just for example a list of how many studies there were on descriptive osteology of birds, and you might think, well, surely there's hundreds. It must be hundreds I haven't heard of. But when you look at the total list, you know, someone's gone to a great trouble to collect everything ever done. The number's really small. And if you've ever looked into this subject, if you've ever gone to, you know, tried to collect the literature, it's, um, you know, you, you as an interested researcher will be aware of certainly more than half of it, maybe two thirds of it. So there's often not much. And, and yeah, you're right. A group like 
like pliosaurs, I mean, if you got anyone who knew anything about these animals to write down, I don't know, write down the the the, the, the authors that have written about these things just off the top of your head, and they you know write down like I don't know, ten, twelve authors. That's it. <laughs> that's probably it. That's probably all that's all there ever is. There's a yeah. I guess what you- I. You'd also expect some of the the bigger, more spectacular animals to get more attention. Mm. Um, for example, there is actually quite a lot on Tyrannosaurus rex, and if you want to know what it looks like, you you can find this out very easily. But yeah. there's there's lots and lots of large, famous animals: Quetzalcoatlus, Dinosuchus, large plesiosaurs, which are quite famous. But th- this sort of material doesn't exist, uh, and right, we've yeah. been laboring under delusions for a long time. Yeah, yeah, and there's complicated reasons for all those things, but yes, there, but there are. You're right. Yeah, there are reasons. Yes. Okay. Well, can't yeah. Really talk about. <laughs> well, well, we we can allude to it. I mean, there is there is this kind of, um, I think in in descriptive anatomy, zoology, paleontology in general, there is this kind of agreement that you don't work on something when someone is supposedly doing it, and because it's just a fluke that you know at this particular time we're at a time in history. Let's include ourselves within. The workings of the 20th century we're at a time in history where we've, we've come out of this victorian stage of initial descriptive work we're now entering this new phase of descriptive digital work and in between people have just come out of the end of the victorian phase saying oh yes we need to do these things again we need to describe them properly but that's hard work it takes a long time and if you even think about say the middle decades of the 20th century that's probably the phase when people started saying oh i'm going to work on all of those i'm going to work on the pliosaurs, I'm going to work on the saber-toothed cats, I'm going to work on the fossil elephants. And then you have these small numbers of individuals that are kind of dominating those fields. And, yeah, they, they often aren't able to produce the works that we expect there to be within, within the few decades, bringing us up to now. So, Yeah, and I, yeah, I guess that's true. There just hasn't been that many people in the field, and anatomical work is incredibly time-consuming, isn't it? Descriptive anatomical work is very time-consuming, so... It's not really surprising, I guess, but um, I guess it is surprising for the more spectacular things, which you'd think people would want to um, Mm. get out there into high-impact journals as quickly as they could. Um, But in some ways, that's detrimental to actual proper anatomical description in any case. True. Right, so um, what what else have we got on Tetsu that we might want to talk about? Pheasants? Pheasants, turkeys, peafowl. Peafowl or glass frogs? Glass frogs. Well, you tell me. Uh, um, let's talk about the fowl to start with. The fowl. I think we've got time. We're doing pretty well. So cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The, uh, this is. There's so many things. Okay, so so here we are, very early on in 2013, and one of my plans is, uh, oh my god, stop writing new stuff. Finish the stuff that needs to be finished. Um, some people have said a couple of times that there are um, several. I don't know how many, but there are quite a few series of articles on Tetsu that I've started series sometimes. I never know the correct plural for that term. <laughs> series. Is, is that true? Do you, do you really think that's right? You, yeah. <laughs> there are many um, groups of articles concerned <laughs> with the same subject that have just never been completed and uh, that's not because I'm not groups interested. Of... Because <laughs> I kind of get to a bit that sort of has me stuck or I have to move on for other reasons and it then lays fallow for a while. So I promised myself, finish all these groups of articles that uh, desperately need to be completed. And uh, I'm trying to do that at the moment with uh, the, the petrols. But, um, but then 
the, the there is a pressure in blogging in that you feel you need to you know you should have something there fairly regularly every few days something to keep people visiting because people are very fickle <laughs> the amount of visitors drops off like a you know cliff edge well you know people that do blogging uh, trying to do it for a living they're like three times a day aren't they exactly yeah and no, it's that's crazy how, how they do that i mean i suppose they can do that because they are getting enough recompense for well it. i suppose yeah. but to be honest i'm not interested in what anyone has to say three times a day you have no. to digest your thoughts more than that yeah i i don't i don't look at any vlogs that have that level of frequency because with all due respect to the individuals concerned their thoughts are often extremely superficial and uh Oh, sites, there's, yeah, there's no yeah. time to digest anything so <clears throat> yeah i don't think yeah. that's really an option but even like once a week like you do isn't it so is it once every four days or something like this? something like that yeah, yeah. something like that every three um, four days i guess tremendous amount of pressure and work yeah yeah so there is pressure to produce something new and what often happens is because i haven't had the time to finish a lengthy piece as i go and look at the pictures i have kicking around i've got thousands and thousands of images of you know museum specimens and animals i've seen and whatever um, and understandably, the majority of those pictures are fairly accessible things. I don't, it's quite difficult to get obscure, good images of obscure animals. Um, those that are available on the internet often aren't available for, um, you know, just random use. They're not creative commons or, or whatever. They're not open. They're, you know, they're, they're just not really available without you making special arrangement. Now, I don't have those pictures myself. I do, of course, like a lot of people, I do have lots of pictures of charismatic big mammals and showy birds because you go to any wildlife park and you get thousands of photographs of those so in a panic i go and look at my pictures oh there's a pretty picture of a peacock <laughs> that's that's or a turkey it's like well yeah let's run with that let's use that i can i can say a few interesting things about those animals and before you know it you've gone off on a little tangent oh let's talk about the exciting world of peafowl and the fascinating history of turkeys and that is how the uh <laughs> that a bill becomes a law that's how, and that's how Bill becomes law. That's how the recent thread on uh, <clears throat> game birds um, got started. Just just with that. Oh yeah, a picture of a you know peafowl are mostly Asian and uh, turkeys are mostly North American. They don't encounter each other that much in the wild. Although having said that, they probably do because now there are feral turkeys and feral peafowl all over the world. But whatever. Um, yeah, that was a good excuse to use. Who'd that win? Picture. Who'd win? Who'd win in a fight? Uh, a peafowl would. Um, turkeys, uh, a domestic turkey, um, is a big, strong, feisty animal. But but peafowl are more formidably armed and faster and uh, generally nastier, in my experience. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> maybe that's a, an idea for another article. Who would win in a fight between turkey and a peafowl? But um, game birds, huge, fascinating, diverse, bizarre group of birds. One of those groups of animals, you know, really want to get stuck into them at some stage, write about them at length, but um, haven't had the opportunity. So, so uh, having touched on turkeys versus peafowl, then I thought, well, you know, turkeys are interesting. I've, I've written about them a few times before about their, I'm interested in elaborate display structures and sexual selection and so on. So there's always stuff to say about turkeys and peafowl along those lines, but there's also the uh, evolutionary histories and the fossil members of these groups. And that led me to talk about the the, the less well known oscillated turkey, which you don't hear about as much as the 
the other turkey, the one that people just call the wild turkey. And uh, you, you don't hear so much about the green peacock, whereas everybody's heard of the, the Indian one, the, 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 the often semi-domestic or domestic blue one. So, um, yeah. Well, that, I found that interesting because the green peacock is actually larger, isn't it? Mm, yeah. And it does have a train. It's not... Uh, yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty much the same as the, the Indian. Same thing, but bigger, more spectacular. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, um, I owe a debt of thanks to my good friend Marcus Buda in, in Germany for sending me the, the photographs of the, uh, the, the green peacock that he saw in um, the Berlin Tier Park, I think it is. Um, because, oh my God, that is just an awesome animal. It's just incredible. It looks enormous, formidable. You can understand why some people call these birds dragon birds. I mean, it's got these kind of iridescent scale-like feathers. It's, it's, it looks like a really, it looks like a really chunky, big, heavy bird, which of course it, it is, but also this remarkable posture it's got. I mean, it's, you look how long the neck is in those photographs that I used. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy looking big bird. And yeah. uh, I think given, you know, so many of us interested in theropod dinosaurs and feathery dinosaurs and the origins of birds, the relationship between birds and dinosaurs, it's like you look at an animal like that, it's really, wow, really inspiring and uh, interesting. Why uh, do but, you think they're not better known? I just <clears throat> very few people know there are two sorts mm -hmm. of peacocks and they, they, they certainly don't know that the one they're familiar with is the lesser peacock. That's right, yeah. yeah. Well, the, the story is that they... They they've never done as well in captivity. Then they're, they're more sensitive and they're they're less easy to to breed and to look mm -hmm. after. They're, they're sort of like uh, I think they they're quite demanding in terms of husbandry and they're not as adaptable in terms of the temperature they're able to cope with uh, right. and they don't breed so happily. And that may be because they actually have a more complicated. There's some dispute over their particular mating system, their particular you know social style. Um, but it may be because we don't really understand what's going on there. Whereas the Indian one, the blue one. It's dead easy to keep. It's easy to transport. It's not fussy. It can live anywhere. It's much, yeah. it's much more able to look after itself. So I think it's just that the quirk of kind of husbandry, so far as I, so far as I know. And with the um, sorry, with the green peacock, the um, female is also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that ties in with this debate about the the social system of these birds, because obviously in the Indian one, the blue one, there's very strong and obvious sexual dimorphism. Not only does the female lack the train, but she's also she doesn't have all that crazy. Um, uh, iridescent blue on her. She's mostly brownish, with a uh, white, um, a lot, of, a lot of white on her body as well. Whereas the the green one, um, in fact, they molt. Obviously, they molt the train. So if you see uh, a male without a train and a female, um, unless you know these birds extremely well, I think you'd be hard pressed to differentiate them. They're really similar. In fact, the only major difference. So far as I can recall, the only major difference between the sexes is the presence or absence of the train. Um, in birds where there's a reduced amount of sexual dimorphism or where the sexes look similar, there often isn't this kind of, uh, the sort of mating style, social style that we associate with, say, the Indian peacock. That is, males aren't, um, um, they are not polygonous or polygamous. That is, they don't, you know, just solicit matings from as many females as possible in animals where sexes are similar you often have like you know sharing of nesting and uh, incubation and chick care and and so on um there tends tends to be something approaching <clears throat> partial to partial or total monogamy 
And um, some people say this is this isn't well understood because these birds are not well studied in the wild. But some people say that this is true for the uh, the green peacock, and that would certainly make sense in view of this difference that we see in sexual dimorphism. So oh, that's that's really interesting because these two birds um, do appear to be closely related. They've been it's thought on the basis of genetics that they've been separate for a couple of million years, yeah, and very they close are though, isn't it? It's close, and yeah, it's it's fairly close. They're nested within a larger group of peacock-like um, game birds, the parvenines, um, which include great argus pheasants and uh, um, uh, several other lineages. And um, they do appear to have the uh, Indian peacock style of um, polygamy or polygony, so showy males with crazy big display feathers that. Uh, solicit matings from as many females as possible. So if it's true that the green peacock really is that unusual, then it's unusual not just relative to the Indian peacock, but relative to other parvenines too. So it's an it's sort of an apomorphic state. Potentially. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, apomorphic, yeah, it's unique to that lineage, that taxon. Hmm. Yeah. A lot of work to do on these birds. Yeah, obviously. Again, as we were saying earlier, you know. It's surprising what hasn't really been worked on, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, glass frogs. Glass frogs. Centralinids. Yeah. What yeah. do we need to know about these frogs? Well, um, the basic thing. So, I, again, you know, we're just going to be repeating things. People that have already read the articles on Tet Zoo, right? Which, which is the... Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Okay, so so glass frogs, this um, group of very small, as in total body length is between two and six centimeters, of um, tropical South and Central American frogs, famously named for their translucent tissues. Their undersides are, you know, near transparent. You can see their organs through their skin, but even on the dorsal surface, their muscles look translucent. You can see bones and such, uh, and organs through green through bones. Yeah, and now some of them have green bones. They don't all have this. Some of them do have white bones, but, but green bones are present in members of several groups. It's, it's a fairly large group, about 160 species. Um, as a guess, I would say it's probably, you're probably going on for, say, 60, 70 species that have the green bones. So why do they have the green bones? Well, nobody knows. I asked <laughs> questions here, Darren. <laughs> it was rhetorical. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to know why we don't have more transparent animals because we've got some um, yeah. these these frogs and there's there's fish there's glass catfish yeah yeah um, but it seems to be pretty rare I mean I suppose there's disadvantages to it um, yeah yeah there's major disadvantages to being trans transparent translucent the so main... why do we have any yeah um, well the the conventional explanation for the presence of pigmented skin. Um, or even pigmentation covering um, tissues within the body, is is that it's to do with blocking harmful UV light, which potentially causes you know mutations in cells and all kinds of problems. Um, so on that basis, you shouldn't expect anything to be transparent or translucent. One thing that has been pointed out, and I think it came up in the discussion thread on Tetsu, is that glass frogs have large amounts of guanine, the chemical guanine, um, as kind of often in animals a whitish uh, structure covering some of their internal organs. So maybe they're using that to protect 
their organs from UV. Mm-hmm. Um, but that still doesn't, doesn't explain why they have translucent or transparent skin in the first place. And, uh, yeah, this is, is at the moment, it's just one of those things that's, that everybody knows, but nobody has, to my knowledge, nobody has investigated. Is it something to do with camouflage of some sort? I mean, we all know that animals that live on leaves want to look greenish. So is it a kind of cheap and lazy way to be greenish by just being translucent so the colour of the leaf shines through your body? I mean, that's one possibility. I don't know. Um, but yeah, yeah, just... Is it to do with disrupting a search image? You know, because maybe it's from some angles they don't look... Well, yeah, I mean, so you don't have an outline as clear yeah. as you would otherwise. Uh, certainly, you know, transparent fish are very difficult to see, aren't they? Especially in the water. Um, yeah. But these, these frogs, they don't... They don't sp- are they spending most of their time in the water or no i mean they're mostly terrestrial they mostly stick on they're mostly yeah. stuck on leaves they're they're mostly leaves, yeah. and uh, some species stick on the dorsal so the upper surfaces of leaves and others on the lower surfaces of of leaves they all nearly all of them lay their eggs on leaves overhanging streams and in quite a few of them the tadpoles drop into the streams and so you have stream dwelling tadpoles but the frogs themselves the adult frogs are not stream dwelling some of them do guard their tadpoles once they're in the water i think i know this i know that quite a few of them do guard the eggs and i was going to suggest that if they're guarding their tadpoles in the water then that could be selection for looking clear in water but i'd have to check that actually i can't remember but also if you're guarding you perhaps you don't want to look clear yeah you want to be seen you want to be visible to scare off insects and things. Yeah. 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 I, I, I don't know. Um, uh, I, I, I did really like the, um, the, the, la- the last time, this is again, this is another Tetsu thing that's recycled from a couple of years ago. I took some text from an old article that was about um, glass frogs are part of this major group of anurans, frogs and toads, probably known as anurans. Um, they're part of this major group called the hyloids which includes basically all the kind of toad-shaped ones. Um, no, I shouldn't say that because that shape has evolved many times within a neuro. But uh, hyloids includes tree frogs and true toads and their close relatives. And glass frogs are within that. Toadomorph. <laughs> Bufomorph. Uh, yeah, they're within, yeah. They're within that, yeah, they're within that, that clade. And um, um, I... Uh, one of the reasons you totally threw me off yeah um in terms of you know we we've got there's there's quite a lot of work that's been done on the um uh the origins of toads how old toads are and about toad biogeography and we have toad fossils going back like um definitely definitely like 40 50 million years and, and there's some late cretaceous possible true toads um and, and toads are actually one of the youngest groups within Hyloidia. So presumably lineages like central lineages, like the glass frogs, are kind of, you know, about that old or even older. But we have no fossils of them at all. So far as I know, not a single glass frog fossil. So every Maybe you in- just can't see them. <laughs> Wouldn't it be interesting if, if, you could, if you could see their fossils really obviously because their fossils were still green? I, I, I don't know. How that would work, but uh, <laughs> I, I did ask um, Linda Trueb, who's a, a neuron expert. I did ask her if she knew why the bones were green, and she knew that it was to do with the staining by 
biliverdin, which is a bile byproduct in the body. I don't know Green how bile. Some, Yeah, yeah, how, yeah. How come some animals end up with stained bones and others don't? And again, what's the what, what's what's going on here? Why what, why is that? I mean. Um, it's nothing to do with photosynthesis, which has been suggested informally a couple of times. We do now that know. That would be cool, from, but yeah. Well, did you know? Well, that, that would is, explain the transparency too, wouldn't it? It would. It really would. Yeah, we we know nice. of one um, amphibian that has um, uh, um, algae living inside its tissue. It actually is able to get some reward from photosynthesizing cells inside it. It's a, a salamander, but uh, there's nothing like that going on in glass frogs, so far it's as we know. type thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was also really attracted to write about them because of the giant humeral spines they have, which are, I think, really cool. Um, frogs and toads are one of those groups of animals where the average person thinks that they're just like squidgy little things and they don't do anything. Maybe they have long tongues they can use to catch flies or whatever, but, but in actual fact, the number of like giant fangs and huge bony head crests and and spiky patches on their hands or their arms um the number of these things that have evolved within the group well they've certainly evolved many times and uh we know of several lineages of anurans that have independently evolved fighting spurs and uh, and spikes on their on their forelimbs and some of these glass frogs you look at you can actually see it in this these are only present in the males but you can you can easily see in an animal photograph from the side or the front this huge spur that's like you know, two thirds as long as at least the uh, the humerus, and these are used in male grappling matches. I don't know. I have some photographs of them performing these. There there are some groups of glass frogs that wrestle by well, kind of you know wrestling by clutching each other's bodies, and then there are others. So and and they're on like the same. Uh, ground level on standing on the same height on leaves or whatever and there are others that, that hang suspended by their hind feet and fight hanging um in midair um and i don't know i'd love to know what kind of injuries they cause to each other whether they do actually like stab each other or rip each other up or something um sounds you, pretty serious i mean as long as the humorous they can presumably kill each other with things like that yeah, well, well, ex well exactly yeah exactly I, I just don't know yeah i have a load more photographs that i was provided by a glass frog worker which i will be using on tetsu soon i want to i'll do that once this as darkid is out of the way but um yeah i don't know if there are photographs of humoral injuries resulting resulting from these battles but that's certainly a very interesting thing about these animals little shop of horrors little shop of horrors so so the plan is for this podcast that we're just going to include some like random crap in the middle right to say whatever i like absolutely yeah i think right. that should be in fact be a good portion of the podcast otherwise it is just <laughs> us reciting what's on tetsu which and it's okay yeah. if people can't be bothered reading it but and who's going to sit through half an hour of glass frogs and plesiosaurs <laughs> well i cut most of that out it was mostly to get to this. <laughs> have you ever seen Little Shop of Horrors? I have. I saw it uh, when I was a kid, though. And it, I, the, it was on video, VHS, and it said Jack Nicholson in Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. And, of course, yeah, he's yeah. in it for about, like, five seconds. Two minutes, maybe. He's not in it. Jack Nicholson is in it. Oh, he's not? Oh, how can you even talk about this if you don't know? Well, Are you talking about the original one? The black talking and white the, one? You're talking about the original. I'm talking about the 1982 Frank Oz. Uh, oh, well, obviously. Oh. Okay. So 
the original one has Jack Nicholson in it, but not yeah, very know, long. Yeah, okay, yeah, so yeah, the nineteen eighty two one. Yeah, yeah, the the Frank Oz one, the one with the the one with the brilliant animatronic. Uh, I haven't seen the original. Oh my god, I need to watch the original. It's terrible. But but you've seen you've seen the nineteen eighty. I think it's nineteen eighty two. You've seen the new I've one. I've seen the original. What? I've seen the original. I haven't seen anything else. Oh my god! So you ha- you don't know about the Frank Oz one? No. Oh, okay. Well, well, that's the whole point of this conversation. <laughs> okay, yes. let's talk about a different yeah. film we've seen. We'll do Little Shop of Horrors next time. Oh, okay. I'll watch it. <laughs> I'll watch it. And we'll, um... You need to watch it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, does, it, does it have the, feed me, feed yes. me. <laughs> yes. Okay, that's in the original too. Right. <laughs> okay, but mm-hmm. we should talk about a film we've both seen. Prometheus. Okay. Have you Prometheus. seen Prometheus? Yeah. I've seen Prometheus, yeah. 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 Great big pile of. Oh, well, I, was, I was just gonna say. I was just gonna say. Are we allowed to swear? Because uh, you know, I haven't decided yet. If I decide that we need a clean rating, I'll go yeah. and add animal noises over all the swearing. Yeah, because I have a lot of junior fans. Yeah, I'll just. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? They, they can. I know. They yeah. can... <laughs> well, I'm gonna be. Keep, I'm gonna keep it clean, even though we're talking about Prometheus. But oh my god. I've only seen it once. I've seen it in the cinema. Um, I'm waiting for my brother to get the Blu-ray um, version so that we can watch the uh, extended beginning and extended middle and extended end or whatever. Is that a good idea? I mean, it's it's pretty bad. It's yeah, but I enjoyed bad. it enough. I, I I don't. I'm not ashamed to say that I can really think a film is pretty terrible, but still want to watch it again. And I did feel that for Prometheus. But this what a mess. And and the thing that insults me the most is, as a huge fan of the Alien quadrilogy or whatever you want to call it, it's like well, uh, we we don't count you. the last one. Well, no, or I, even I, the third I, one. Let's call it uh, the well, yeah, Alien and Aliens. Then okay, yeah. whatever. I, I, I having uh, being a fan of the the um, Aliens yeah, universe. Let's call it the whole franchise. Yeah, um, um, just just uh, having having the the uh, the still warm corpse urinated all over by that monster that was prometheus is is really nasty it's like oh my god i hate it when uh, i could say that i say a similar thing for the newest the newer star wars films the fact that we all know that there's this expanded universe thing people have built up over decades where um for star wars and also for alien and aliens people have come up with these you know numerous comics and novels and uh, all these like little stories that potentially explain the hitherto unexplained aspects of the story and and then to just sort of dis you know discard all that just forget forget it doesn't exist i mean there's there's many stories in the dark horse aliens comics well not many there are several um stories that are about the engineers or, or the space jockey as it was known that you see in alien and uh and you know there's and there's a rational explanation as to what kind of alien rational you know you know there's like there is a good explanation as to what kind of alien good, it is good explanation well which is but a substantially better it's a giant pink semi-albino man in a in a in a stupid looking suit um so it's just it just it's just an insult and and also the explanation for the xenomorphs you know xenomorphs are again there's many many stories in comics and novels and such where xenomorphs as components of an ecosystem you know they've evolved they're like uh, you know animals 
polymorphic animals that change shape according to their, the biology of their hosts. And now that's all been done away with because now, oh, by the way, they, they were just invented by these guys who invented them at some biotech weapons facility. I mean, it's just... It's all stupid, but I tell you what really irritated me was the chariots of the gods thing. Um, the thing so about I... this is it's just so overplayed these days. If you're going to think of a new thing, you have to at least give it a new twist. So these aliens, the engineers, are meant to be kind of responsible for us, right? Yeah, they seed planets, including this one. Yes. And the, the way they discover this is by finding out that their DNA is identical to ours. And they look like us. Were they meant to have seeded the planet millions and millions of years ago at the beginning of life, or were they mm. meant to have come around and when you see interceded the in between yeah. us and chimps? Yeah, well, when when they when you see the very first the first the opening scenes of the film, when you see an engineer um, uh, removes they remove some robe or something, and they take some kind of special little capsule thing, and then their body actually disintegrates, and you see their tissue being dis dis dissipated in the water. The idea I understand the idea behind that is that that is the body of that individual is actually seeding the planet, so they actually sacrifice themselves in order to bring life to other planets. So. Yeah, they, they couldn't use scrapings or anything like that. Big scrapings. <laughs> well, well, there's another spin on this that we haven't mentioned so far. Similar, but is along the same lines as what you've just said—the von Daniken-esque um, chariots of the gods things—is there's a there's the theme that runs through the entire movie is basically the story of Christ. Have you you heard this? No, I haven't. Enlighten well, me. well, okay. Well, uh, in the original, in Aliens, we're told that the planet where the the the, the ship is found is called. LV, oh dear, LV four two two six. Oh dear. I'm sure we'll get lots of angry email. I'm, yeah, not sorry. I'm sorry, sorry, fanboys, fangirls. I'm not nerdy enough. Um, not 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 on this particular fact, anyway. Um, whereas we're told in Prometheus that that's not the planet they've gone to. They've gone to another one, and um, they've gone to LV something 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 else. And if you so I, I read somewhere that if you assume that LV stands for Leviticus, and if you therefore check that code as a verse, uh, uh, how does the Bible work? Is it chapters and verses? Um, such a bad atheist. Books. Books, and then books are, that are broken into chapters. I think it's chapters and verses. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so it's like it's, you can pin it on a specific clause in the Bible. And if you check that specific clause, it's something to do with the um, something to do with God saying that he who has uh, he who has like given me up um, basically can't be helped and should be hunted down and destroyed or something. And if you encapsulate, if you imagine that as like the broad philosophy of what the engineers are doing in Prometheus, um, then there's an awful lot in the story that is, um, I don't know, just kind of has like a sort of a biblical ring to it. Uh, I mean, we've got the whole sacrifice thing. We've got the fact that we know that they are meant to have been on LV, whatever. We know they're meant to have been there about, I think they say about 2,000 years ago, so like around about the time of Christ. Mm. And we know that they were... Isn't there, it's, it's actually been such a long time since I've not only seen the movie, but since I've discussed this. I discussed this at great length on Facebook and with actual people as well. <laughs> um, isn't, isn't there some stuff in there about how they find out that the, um, 
one of the ships was programmed to take those capsules to Earth. And yes. the, the, the point of the capsules is that they do, like, nasty stuff. They're, like, bad, man. So, Yeah, so, because for some reason, now they don't like us. Yeah, because... Now, again, forgive me, it's been a while, but isn't there the implication somewhere that they're, like, getting... Well, I, I made the point of, you know, reading interviews with um, uh, Ridley Scott and, and other people, and they were saying that definitely, definitely at one time, they did consider the possibility of, um, of, of the engineers avenging the death of Christ... So they definitely consider this. And I, I, I've mentioned that Leviticus thing, and I'm afraid it's, it's gone from memory now, but there's definitely other things in the story that are um, allusions to... Uh, well, I can believe that. I mean, mythology. and they're also just in the dialogue and what they sort of talk about. You know, it's very... There's um, the whole virgin birth thing as well, isn't there, where main female character, I forget her name, but she has to have, like, the medical pod, and she gives, you know, it's kind of, She's told that she's infertile, but yet she still conceives. She and, wasn't a virgin, though. She wasn't technically a virgin. <laughs> We've just seen it in the <laughs> previous scene. <laughs> she wasn't, and she wasn't inseminated. She was inseminated by a conventional means. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I just remember it being rather more convincing. And my point, my point here is basically similar to what you just said about the chariot, the gods thing. Is uh, it's like, come on. It's like I don't want to. I mean, you know. Biblical mythology, that's like big mythology. It's like classic stuff. It's almost like Star Wars level. You know, it's like, which, and again, Star Wars works because it's kind of got a biblical thing to it as well. But my point is, a mate, that's an amazing piece of mythology. It's like, you know, got all these key components in it. So if you're going to come up with some compelling, you know, brand new sci fi thing for the 21st century, for Christ's sake, can't you come up with something original and just rip off something that we've all read in a book already? I mean, that's my point. Yeah. Well, to be fair, they ripped off several books and mushed them all together in an incoherent mess. That's what they did. Which, it's at least a semi-original way of copying. What actually, uh, and I haven't talked to people about this much because Jenny gets sick of hearing me rant about <laughs> stuff like this. Um, but I've heard in podcasts people complaining about the characters and they just they are characters and they, they're not internally consistent they certainly don't act like scientists or people yeah, that yeah, would yeah. be on a trip like this they act yeah. like idiots yeah totally yeah, yeah, so, idiots. They, yeah so they so they, they discover an amazing evidence for a civilization and they're like all mopey and depressed and the, yeah, the I'm scared. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I've seen a dead body. Well, this is the you, biologist. Yeah, you've seen these uh, memes, I think the memo generated a load, where biologist is encountered by a deadly-looking penis-like cobra monster. What does he do? He prods it until it, until it crawls up his arm and smashes through his space helmet. Um, the the guy who's meant to be the the um, the tech expert on you know he's got those ball things he's meant to be like the yeah. gut, the expert on navigation <laughs> gets lost. I know this is the thing. So they they actually chose the characters that were least likely to do the things that they did. Yeah. So their yeah. biologist at first gets scared of the dead body, won't even look at it, says he's going to get out of there. <laughs> then in the, just a few scenes later, he's the one that isn't afraid of the deadly looking penis cobra mm. worm thing. Mm. And also acts not like a biologist. Yeah. And their mapper is the one that gets lost. It's That's like right. they deliberately did this to us, just yeah. to us go, yeah. "Oh, come on." 
there's also there is I, I agree with all that. there's also the point that the 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 behavior the, the sorry the speech of the people is absolutely unrealistic it's just again i've heard other people say this so it sounds like i'm ripping off their perspective but if you look at alien you know the bit just before the chest burster um comes out of john hurt's body um yeah. people are sick there's lots of scenes in alien where people are sitting around talking about crap they're talking about like how much money they're gonna get or you know it's small talk just normal crap whereas in prometheus it's like every single conversation is unrealistically contrived it's all the conversations are about big picture stuff and about oh where do we feel where do we fit in the universe and do you know what i mean that's i think that's because it's unrealistic yeah, but I think that's because they completely overloaded the mythology aspect of the film and they had to cram it all in somehow, right? So they wanted the whole chariots of the gods thing. They wanted their biblical references. There's probably other stuff in there that we haven't seen or thought of. They <clears> thought this would make it richer, but instead it just makes it an incoherent mess. And also, it's just because the people are so dumb. I don't, mm. I didn't care mm. about any of them. They can all die. Stupid. No, I agree. I agree. Why did, why did Charlize Theron and the other lady, why did they run in a straight line when they're running? <laughs> I've heard all this. So this is all coming. Have you heard the Red Letter Media, the Red Letter Media response to Prometheus? No. Google it after this. Red Letter Media Prometheus. It's very funny. He goes through uh, um, all of the different stupid things that uh, crop up in the film. I, I think when when it when it gets to the very end of the film, you're sat in a cinema, um, and you're like, look to the person at your left, look to the person you're right, and shrug. And go. It's like, That's not a good sign. And that was my reaction at the very end of. Prometheus is like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> I paid good money for this. Um, so yeah. I so I'm looking forward to seeing it on Blu-ray. <laughs> are you? Yeah, I refuse to see it in the cinema because I, I just knew, I knew that this was going to happen. I, prequels, they just, they don't really work. Oh, they, but they so can There's a be reason done. you didn't start back in the story. There's a reason you started in the middle. Yeah, just, when you were I, making I still, the original film, I still think they could be done right, but I'm just struggling. They could to think be done better, but yeah, there's a one one film that's, that I find fairly interesting. It's not a particularly good film. Is it's a prequel, but they haven't yet made the other films. <laughs> and it's it's uh, I forget what it's called. It's set in L.A. and it's about these um uh kind of giant alien biotech kind of craft things that like come down from the sky and they put down a blue light. And people get like floated up into space, and then the aliens are only interested in brains, <laughs> and because the aliens are kind of like, uh, how do they work? They, I think, the aliens take on the bodies of other alien species, but just take out all the spinal tissue in the brain and just put the put their own brains back into other bodies once it's worn out. I think that's the. Um, I've forgotten what it's called. Sky something. Oh, Skyline or something like that. Is that it? That sounds, yeah, sounds right. Sounds right, yeah. And that's the and one that's ends... got a 3.5 rating on IMDb, I believe. Uh, what's that, out of 10? Yeah. Well, there you go. I said it, it wasn't puts it, good. puts it in the sort of the yeah. bottom the, the, one percentile. The, the, yeah, the, the prequel context to it was interesting, which is it ends with the main character, his brain going into his, his human body is discarded and. I've totally, I've totally explained this wrong because obviously his brain goes into like an alien body, uh, but as an alien, he's uh, he's like now he's in an alien body, but he's like good, yeah. So yeah. so he like breaks out and rescues his girlfriend, and uh, the idea is that he's the film ends with him being this like super powerful kind of like creature thing. 
and if you listen to the commentary they explained the idea is they were setting up how you know you know like this the mythology so, for every superhero is like what how did the superhero get like that in the first place he got bitten yeah. by a spider or or whatever well in this case it's like ah oh, that's that was just the prequel. Now it gets a bit <laughs> right. So, but, but how is this different from a film that hopes to have a sequel? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I think the very definition of prequel is that it has to be made second. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's good, good point. Yeah, because then it would just be the first film, <laughs> the first one. <laughs> <laughs> a prequel without film, yeah. a sequel. Um, yeah. So, in other words, you can't think of a single good prequel. Um, I, I just um, there must be loads, but I just can't think of. Uh... See, I just don't think there are. I think it's a fundamental artistic mistake. People yeah. thought that. Um, <laughs> what was it? Was it X Men First Class? Everyone hated that too, didn't they? I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I didn't see it. I liked was, it. I was liked that Mark the one about spent. Wolverine? What was that one? How he got uh, his claws was, and everything. Wolverine is a totally different film, and I, I haven't. I, I think I've seen that, and I remember that being pretty terrible. But um, X Men yeah. First Class, yeah, Wolverine's not in it. It's about it's about Magneto, played by Michael Fassbender, and um, and a whole bunch of other people. But I um, think they're a bit different, the comic book films, because you've got a whole well-established universe. So you've got stories you can hook into and you make them out of order, but it's not like you're making up the prequel after you've already made the first film. Like Star yeah. Wars, like Aliens. Which I think is a disaster. Because you've got a lot of baggage that you have to sort of explain. Which, and everyone knows how it ends. So you're sort of in a straitjacket in terms of um, the story. Yeah, the surprises you can pull. People know mm. where it's going. And yeah. It just, and also people have invented all this for themselves to start with. They're always going to be disappointed if you go and mess it up. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I, a lot of people, a lot of Star Wars people, the only bit of the uh, Revenge of the Sith that they like is the last couple of minutes that explain how everything came to be for the start of Episode Four. But I actually found that you know again too contrived. It's kind of like we don't do we really need to see. Anakin going into the suit. Do we really need to see Moff Tarkin and yeah, like the, oh, uh, that's what happened. Yeah, he went oh, into the so, suit. Oh, now so, I get it. Yeah, so the whole the whole cartoon series droids <laughs> never happened because R two D two and C three P were on the blockade runner the entire eighteen years between these movies. It's like <laughs> it's like yeah. Oh, and I'm not a huge fan of droids, by the way. I just thought it was. You ever seen droids? No. Cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a nerd. Anthony Daniels as C-3PO, <laughs> just like in the movies. What? It's a yeah. what is it? A, a it's like a cartoon or? series for kids called Droids, and it oh. was about the adventures of the the adventures of R2D2 and C-3PO before they end up on the. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Blockade because they're not meant to know them, and it's fairly clear in the first film that they don't. Right. Mm. In Star Wars, the original. Yeah, they they yeah. don't know these droids. Yeah. Oh well, there you go. They did. Obi Wan is actually intimately familiar with R two D two. He's known him for years and years. He just yeah, just pretends, forgot. It, pretends yeah. he doesn't. Yeah. Pretends, pretends he doesn't. He, I've never seen you before. Yeah, like an old girlfriend kind of thing. So they're going to remake them. Sorry, not remake, remake them. them. They're going to make more ones. <clears throat> yeah, JJ Abrahams just um, confirmed as director for Episode Seven. You know what my which... prediction of that about this is? 
Mm, go on. It's going to be crap. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say that... The, everyone the, thinks the... it's going to be good because everyone loves J.J. Abrams, but it's going to be yeah. crap. It's going to be crap. Well, and everyone will go, oh, how could he let us down like this? He could let us down like this because it wasn't ever meant to have this many films. I don't know. I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll remain optimistic until I see it. And I thought Star Trek was brilliant. And Star Trek Into Darkness looks awesome, having seen the trailer, which is a good guide to how good a film's going to be, right? Here's what I object to in Star Trek. All these recent Star Trek films are about some dude really angry getting revenge. Yeah. We need a new new plot. A new plot. Is Into Darkness about this as well? I bet it is. Yeah. It's about... <laughs> Bumdeus Cumbersnatch or whatever he's called. <laughs> um, what's his name? Cuthbert Bumdeusnatch. <laughs> <laughs> the guy who played, he played Sherlock Holmes or something. <laughs> I can never remember his name. Bumdeusnatch. <laughs> I always, I'm not sure if I'm getting confused with the Jabberwocky poem or something, but uh, yeah, uh, uh, a British actor, and he plays, he plays this baddie character who's out for revenge, and a lot of people were saying, "Oh, is it Khan?" No, or... serious, seriously, it's a guy out for revenge. Again. Yeah. <laughs> really? It's not a Rob Yeah, yeah, really, I, just, yeah, I think it is. I didn't notice. Have you, um, have you not seen the trailer? No. Oh, but... God. What do you do with your time? <laughs> yeah. Check um, it out. The trailer's really awesome. Well, yeah, but they, they've had the same plot for the last six Star Trek films. We need a new plot. <clears throat> Re- I mean, go back to Rescuing Whales. For all I can. That's what I was going to say. What about Star Trek: The Search for Spock? No, uh, the the voyage home. The one with the whales and the giant fish tank. Yeah, yeah but that was in the seventies, eighties. I reckon it was early to mid eighties. I guess I say eighty three, eighty four. Yeah, so I it's guess. been quite a while since we've had anything but a revenge plot. Actually, you know what? There was that Borg one, wasn't there? Um, First Contact. Yeah. But then, yeah, which is like the a, Borg getting revenge. Maybe they were, and they had um, the Borg leader. Which no, is it's stupid. it's it's yeah. No, it's just to do with a uh, the timeline getting screwed up, isn't it? Because it starts with a uh, a Borg cube heading into Federation space, and and then the 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 Borg emit tachyon particles or some time travel chron- chrono particles or something, and they go back in time, and the, and the Enterprise just happens to follow them and wind up in. That's another thing where, they all have is time travel. Yeah, yeah. Because if yeah. you just go around the sun fast, it's enough, revenge it's from the future. This is what. We... <laughs> Actually, that's a good title. I think they should call it that. <laughs> revenge from the future. Star yeah. Trek Fifty Seven: Revenge from the Future. Yes. yes. What a parody that would be. Yes. Mm. All right. So we've done. <laughs> just we've done, we've done half an hour on films half an now. Hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great. So we should wrap it up. Um. Uh, what are our sponsors this month, Darren? We have sponsors? No, we don't have any sponsors. <laughs> we should have some. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> I don't have some sponsors. Money. They if, do that. If, yeah. if, if you want to sponsor this crap, then uh, email us. Yeah. What's our email address? Uh, it's, I don't know. Should I use just my, my email address? I really haven't <laughs> thought about this. <laughs> <laughs> PayPal account? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know yet. I was thinking about um, registering one, but I haven't done it yet. So I'll double it in later. Um, uh, where can they find your stuff, Darren? Uh, go to Google. <laughs> Touchboard Zoology, currently hosted at Scientific American. Yep. 
there's a if you're on Facebook, there is a Tetrapodology Facebook page, and I tweet at at Tetsu. Yeah, which is so rather stupid because yeah, most people can't find me because of course they do. You think you'd be t- tweeting from Tetsu? Yeah, you tweet at yeah from at Tetsu. <laughs> there's also a hashtag Tetsu, which is often full of hilarious um, quips and sidelines. So that's where they can find you on the Twitters. Yeah. And the Facebooks. And you the internet. The Facebooks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters. Um, my, my handle is impossible to spell. It's Nike to Terrace. If you can't spell it, well, shame on you. Um, sure it's not Nick to Terrace. They should, <laughs> shut up. And they should visit my website, johnconway.co. Yeah, especially if you can't spell any of the other things. It's links to all that. Um, what else? They should buy our stuff, shouldn't they? They should buy our stuff. Oh, hey, have you got a copy of All Yesterday's to hand? Um, I have, but it's some distance away. Yeah, I don't. Actually. Oh, yeah, one thing. But one hang thing on, hang was... on. It's not a video podcast, Darren. Well, stop wasting <laughs> your time looking around then. Ah, I thought I thought it was initially when we discussed this. So one of the things I did is I have a big stack here. Listen. Big stack of new books, which I was going to talk about. Well, you um, know, one... I think we should do a video podcast at some stage, but not. I think one. we should. Yeah. yeah. No, seriously. One thing I, I I get a lot of books to review for Tetsu, and I I review them all. I always do, but it takes me, and I think this is pretty ordinary for people who write proper reviews. It takes me like one to two years to get around to reviewing a book because I have to read it <laughs> first. And um, there's so many good books come out that by the time I actually write about it, it's not timely you know I'm, I'm i'm talking about a book that's come out a couple of years ago and there's there is a book which i've just received i just want to mention it. it's called the unfeathered bird by christina von grau i'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly it could be von grau i'm, I'm not sure probably published by princeton i'll show you look look at the size of it it's huge it's huge awesome yeah. it's it's beautiful i mean the unfeathered bird look look at this look at this art can you can you see some yeah. Yeah, stalk it's nice. skulls. It's, it's full of stuff like that. And loads of um, illustrations of birds behaving normally, but they're shown without uh, the external stuff, without the skin and the feathers. So you're looking at skeletons or musculature studies. So that's cool. I think that should, I'd like that to be kind of like a regular thing, you know, talk about new books and stuff. Yeah, no, that's cool. We can do that. Yeah. Um, mm. That's a good idea. Uh, and I think maybe occasionally we should do a video podcast. Yeah. 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 Maybe especially for the books. Yeah. Um, but that that, that uh, they can buy that if they like. But if they, like, they have to buy our stuff. Yeah. Um, are there books you still get royalties on apart from all yesterday's? Um, 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 um Tetsu, Tetrapodology Book One. I Tetrapod Zoology Book One. Uh, well, the the Tetrapod. Um, oh, you won't be able to zoology. get that, well, that's uh, now limited edition. There's, there's only, there's seriously only a couple of hundred copies ever published, and they sell for two to three hundred pounds on Amazon. They're sought after collectors' <laughs> issues. I've got, I've only, uh, I've only got one. I'm not, I'm not parting with it. And the other people I know who've got them won't give them either. So um, yeah, well, I, I still get royalties for Tetrapodology Book One. Okay. Um, but other than that, so people should buy that. People should buy that. Um, Obviously, all yesterday's is still doing very well in terms of sales. Yeah. Um, so buy that too if you haven't bought that already. Yeah. The the complete dinosaur second edition, which has got my substantial review of the fossil rest, well, the, the the history of birds, 
is uh, in its time. It obviously, only came out at the end of last year, so a lot of people are getting that. A lot of people got that over Christmas. Yeah, you're getting royalties um, from that. I don't think so. No, no. <laughs> don't bother flogging no. books you don't get royalties from. Well, I don't get royalties from anything. I think royalties are a myth. You get royalties. You're about to get a um, check. Well, a PayPal for all yesterday's. Well, that's different because that's a self-published book, isn't it? But every other book I've done has always been through a mainstream company. But you and get them the, for Tetrapod Zoology, right? Yeah, because that's a self. That's well, I suppose that's that's through a small publisher. All the, like, if you use a mainstream publisher, that's just not right. how it works. Yeah, but okay. Maybe I should, but, I know, stick, should to, I stick to stick to the flogging ones that um you actually get money from. Well, that's it then. We need direct <laughs> money. Also, I'm going to put a donate button on the website. Okay, so I've sorted this out now. The email address is tetzoothepodcast at gmail.com and the website to go to is tetzoo.com. So head on over there and we'll be back in two weeks. Excellent. Right. Okay. I think we're done.